Well, turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 has been our text for the last few weeks. But Titus 2, 11 through 14 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We return to this great passage, text of Scripture this morning that we've been looking at, and we've been looking at this beautiful, amazing uh, diamond, if you will, precious jewel called the grace of God. The grace of God. And we've been looking at it from different angles or from different viewpoints, or we've been calling it from different perspectives. That we, as we look at the grace of God, we might marvel and appreciate God's great work of salvation. Uh, We've seen already in verse 11 that God's grace can be looked at from the perspective that it is a saving grace. That God has rescued us from the penalty and the punishment of our sin. And that saving grace has nothing to do with you being able to do anything to save yourself. You cannot work enough to save yourself. You cannot be good enough to save yourself. God doesn't grade on a curve. God's saving grace is shown and and offered to you based upon the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His merits, not the currency of any of our good works. God's grace is a saving grace. But now we are seeing that God's grace is also a sanctifying grace, a sanctifying grace. We who have uh, been saved, been justified, have entered this process called sanctification. And that's a process that refers to the ongoing lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And so verse 12 tells us that grace trains us in this process of sanctification, Helps us to become more and more like Jesus. How does it do it? It's a twofold kind of training. On the one hand, we've seen that grace, if you notice in verse 12, grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And on the other hand, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So it's a twofold training that grace, um, by which grace sanctifies us. Firstly, Um, We are trained to deny, which means to abandon or renounce or say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. Christians, God's people, children of God are no longer to give in to their sin, to give in to their remaining sinful pleasures and sinful desires. By the grace of God, we are to be set apart from sin for Christ. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart from sin for Christ. We are now, we now have a new master, capital M, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 5.17 says concerning believers, if any man or woman is in Christ, that is in union with Christ, which describes that inseparable relationship that we have with Jesus, that connection that we have by faith in him. If any man or woman is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. That is our past sins. Behold, new things have come. As a new creature, you now have new desires, a new orientation. We are far from perfect, amen? Far from perfect as believers, but now you realize and recognize the vanity of sin and its worthlessness and the fact that it's not going to lead anywhere good. And we long to be like Jesus. We long to be set apart 
from sin for Christ. But we also have began to see last week that denying ungodliness and worldly desires is really only one side of, gra- of grace's training. On the other hand, because we are a new creation in Christ, we are to say yes, look at verse 12, to living sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It's like a, like a pair of scissors, right? Those two blades that are joined together, that work in conjunction with one another to cut and to be effective. That is the Christian life. You need both a putting off and a putting on if you are to grow and become more and more like Jesus. And so there's this positive side of saying yes to living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present world. We saw that that word sensible is a common word in the book of Titus. It's a comprehensive word, which has to do with living in accordance with a saved mind. A a life of self-control that begins with sound, saved thinking. Because as the mind goes, so do the actions and so does the conduct. So this is self-mastery beginning with a new informed thinking in accordance with the Word of God. And notice verse 12, we are to also be living righteously. Yes, we are positionally righteous in Jesus Christ, justified because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. But we have entered a, we also are to be living righteously. And within the broader context of the book of Titus, this means that we are to be devoted to doing right to doing good works, to being zealous for good deeds, to meeting the needs of others, doing what is right, doing what, uh, uh, following conduct that is upright in the sight of God, that honors Him, that is a reflection of His character. And that includes the way that we love one another. So notice personally in verse 12, we are to live sensibly. Toward others, we are to behave righteously, practically speaking, But finally, and this is where we left off last week, there's a third word having to do with our relationship with God more specifically, and that is that we are to live godly. Prior to coming to know Jesus Christ, we were people, as it's described in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, that that had no hope and without God in the world. We were ungodly. We did not regard or acknowledge God in our thoughts. We did not consider Him first and foremost in our priorities, in our actions, in our words, in anything that we did. We didn't ask the question, Lord, will this glorify You? And is this a reflection of Your holy character? We didn't do that. But now as believers, we want to reflect His holy character. We want to give Him glory. We are image bearers of the glory of God in our lives. And we saw, we've seen in the context in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, we did a whole series on, on what godly conduct looks like for the various groups in the church. Why are they to conduct themselves this way? For the glory of God, for the honor of His Word, so that we might have a, a godly witness before a lost world that brings glory to Jesus Christ. And so the godly person longs to see God glorified. The godly person who understands the grace of God in his or her own life are not living lives to exalt themselves. They want to exalt King Jesus. Amen? That's what our desire is to be about. Now, I think we know this, don't we? As we look at at what we're instructed to do here, to put off sin and to put on righteousness, practically speaking, I think we know that we need to be holy. We know those texts as believers that call us to be set apart from sin for Christ. And some of us want to be holy. The problem becomes that we are not willing to do the hard work to be godly and to be holy. We're not willing to do the hard work. Some of us, frankly, are very neglectful 
about our spiritual walk before the Lord. And it shows in our lives in the way that we live. It shows in our lack of love and obedience to the Lord. We're very neglectful about spiritual things. Some of us, frankly, are spiritually lazy. We're not willing to put in the hard work. And it isn't that we don't have enough time because everybody gets 24 hours in a day. Every single one of us gets the same amount of time. But some of us are not very good at being deliberate and purposeful with the way that we use our time. We have misplaced priorities and therefore we don't spend time sitting at the feet of Jesus learning from him. We're very neglectful about spiritual things. There are people also whom I've talked to who misunderstand what grace means in the Christian life. Once you have been saved, how does grace work in the Christian life? Some people have this mentality, well, I'm saved. Um, I'm secure in my salvation. I don't need to work for anything in the Christian life, right? You know what? That's, those kinds of statements, whether we would articulate them that way or not, are based upon a misunderstanding of how grace works in the Christian life. We think that grace maybe saves us, but it's got no implications for the way that we live or for walking holy before the Lord. To you, I would say this. If you are a Christian this morning, you are absolutely secure in Christ. Absolutely. God is for you in Jesus Christ. God's love for you is not dependent as a believer. If you are a believer, is not dependent upon your performance in the same way that his saving grace was not dependent upon your works. You are secure in Christ if you are a believer. But hear me. This does not mean that you are not to work hard as a believer in the grace of God in Christ for holiness. We are called biblically, as we're going to see, to strive in the pursuit of holiness. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's direct quotation from God found in Leviticus 11, Leviticus 19, throughout the book of Leviticus. You shall be holy for I am a holy God. And if you address as father, that means if you have a relationship with God by which you address him as father and you're his child. um, If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And here's the why. Knowing with this knowledge that you were not redeemed believer with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile or vain way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. Which is speaking of, of Jesus' death there. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus Christ died to make us Holy. To set us apart from sin for himself. Now listen, even as Christians, however, because we're not perfected, this is not just going to happen, beloved. It's not just going to happen. And it's amazing how many Christians I talk to that have this very lackadaisical, passive approach to their sanctification, to their pursuit of Jesus Christ, and seeking to be set apart from sin for Christ. It's amazing how how often I hear about all the compromises that some of us are willing to do to put ourselves in situations where we're going to compromise with sin and not be set apart for Christ. It's amazing. Listen, holiness requires from us as believers that we discipline ourselves. That's what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. Listen, 
but discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the one to come. That word there in 1 Timothy 4, 7 translated discipline is a word gumnazo, from which we get, guess what? Gymnasium, right? Gymnasium. What happens in a gymnasium? Rigorous training. Hard work. You rarely walk into any gymnasium where people are not sweating to some capacity or another or passing out. It's hard work. Sweat. Pain. No pain, no gain, like my football uh, uh, coach used to tell me. And that's the the terminology that Paul uses there. Because if we, we can understand and identify with that terminology. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Work hard. If that's the case in the physical realm, how much more in the spiritual realm? That we are to be hard working in terms of sanctification. Many of us struggle with our sins and our struggles that we have. And we say, oh Lord, why is it that I'm going through this? And then if we look and survey your life as far as your pursuit of Jesus on the pages of his word, beholding his majesty and his redemptive work and pursuing obedience to his commands, it's absent. And then you wonder why you're struggling in the Christian life. Why you're not victorious in the power of the Spirit? Because you are not putting in the work and relying upon the grace of God to put in that work. John Piper sharing about his pastoral work over the years with Christians like that says this, I often hear Christians murmuring about their imperfections and their struggles and their sins, saying, why am I this way and why am I that way? Murmur, murmur, murmur. I say to them, make war against your sin. Make war against your sin. What is he saying? By your own moral bootstraps, do this? No, because of the saving grace of God and the sanctifying grace of God, precisely because of that, make war with your sin. It's what John Owen would articulate in his writings. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. See, holiness and sanctification, beloved, in the Christian life requires hard work. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.26. Therefore I run in such a way, he says, as not without aim. He's describing the Christian life and using these metaphors. I run in such a way as not without aim. Nothing worse than a runner, right? Not focused on the finish line, on finishing the race. He says, I don't run that way. I run with the finish line uh, um, in my, in my um, sight, I box in such a way as not beating the air. Nothing worse than a boxer who is not efficient at hitting the target. He says, I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Listen, Paul is not calling there for some self-righteous, legalistic form of self-denial or asceticism by by your own moral bootstraps or by your own strength. He is talking about this. He's using these metaphors for the Christian life that describe and emphasize spirit-empowered, grace-enabled intentionality, purposefulness, self-control, and integrity in the Christian life. And that is what, in the power of the Spirit of God and by the grace of God, leads to you becoming more and more like Jesus. And it is possible 
to be disciplining yourself this way and to be practicing self-control this way precisely because, listen to me, the Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, lives permanently inside of you and empowers you by His grace to be able to do live the Christian life. Oh, how we have forgotten the Holy Spirit, haven't we? We often forget about Him. One of the most neglected realities in the Christian's life is that we have been permanently indwelled by the precious Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says that the Holy Spirit, it's, He's the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, literally a down payment of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit given to every believer to dwell in us permanently is the guarantee of our future inheritance. Our future inheritance. Jesus promised that upon His ascension, the Holy Spirit would come. Not for the first time. And throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was very active in that work. In different ways. Filling people for particular tasks or missions. Upon the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts came upon believers permanently now to indwell in them and to never leave them again. To empower us in the Christian life. Jesus promised His Holy Spirit. In John fourteen twenty six, He said this, But the Helper... With a capital H, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit is our helper, our parakletos, one called alongside of us to encourage us and to comfort us. He is our teacher. Jesus says he's going to come and teach you all, bring to your remembrance all that I said to you, so that you might, according to the Great Commission, obey those things that I've commanded you. He's our teacher. He's our helper. He's the great illuminator and guide into all of the truth. He lives in every single one of us, beloved, as believers, as Christians, as children of God. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said to his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. That was upon giving them his instructions about the great commission to build his church by making disciples. He said, I'm going to send you out on a mission. Just remember that you can't do it without my spirit. He is going to come and he's going to empower you. And if you read the book of Acts chapter 1, that's exactly who they were waiting for. They were waiting for the spirit's arrival so that they might be able to fulfill their mission of building Jesus' church by making disciples. The Spirit of God empowers us to be able to fulfill our mission. And in the pursuit of holiness, don't forget about the the fact that what fuels sanctification in the Christian life is the grace of God. And we are empowered by the Spirit of God. Isn't God so good, beloved? He is so good, isn't He? He gives us everything that pertains to life and godliness so that we can obey Him. That we can follow His commands. Listen to Philippians 2 verse 12. And 13, so then, my beloved, which is a term of endearment for Christians, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, here it is, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Someone says, what? That sounds like works-based salvation. No. He's writing to those who already are in union with Christ. So what does this mean then? Keep reading. He says, for, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for, here's the reason, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You can 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Pursue sanctification precisely because God is at work in you. Otherwise, we couldn't even work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We couldn't pursue the Lord without the Spirit of God working in and through us. You understand. Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is at work in us. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, so that it says that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything that we have. We have all of the resources that we need. And yet as Christians, our problem is, is that we fail to plug in to the power source, don't we? That's our problem. It's not that we don't have what we need as believers to be victorious in the Christian life. It's that we don't plug in. You know, I have a bunch of appliances lying around all over my house. Some better than others. And so do you all over your house, for your backyard or for the inside of your house. All of those appliances, as fancy schmancy as they might be, they are useless and worthless unless you plug them into the what? Power source. You can have them lying around and spend a lot of money doing it, but they're worthless, useless to you unless you plug in, right? That's when they become efficient. So it is in the Christian life. We have everything that we need, and yet God expects us to be relying upon Him, resting upon Him, leaning upon Him, and remembering that we live uh, the Christian life by the grace of God. So you and I are to be actively pursuing Christ. We have everything that we need. And listen, I'm comforted by the fact that when we fail, and we will fail over and over again, how wonderful it is that God still works in us to complete us. Amen? He always works in us. Well, since this is the case, the question that we might ask is, how does God work to sanctify a person? How does grace sanctify us to become more and more like Jesus Christ? Well, let me begin by saying this, for those of you who are non-Christians, those of you who have not given your life to the Lord, you first and foremost need to embrace God's free gift in Christ Jesus. None of this really applies to you. It's just behavior modification. It is just putting on external religion. It is trying to gain favor before God by your works. Unless you have committed your life to Jesus Christ, He is the only sin bearer who can pay for your sins. He is the only one. But simply hearing the message about Jesus Christ dying for your sins on the cross doesn't activate that saving grace. You must respond by turning from your sins and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And faith is a commitment. A commitment whereby you definitively renounce, abandon your old sinful lifestyle and self-worship to put your faith in Jesus Christ and transfer everything from self-trust and trusting in your own works to trusting in Jesus' merits on the cross. That's what faith is. It's a commitment, an abandoning of self-trust to trusting in Jesus alone. And listen, God doesn't save you by your good works or actions. He doesn't save you um, on a curve, how you compare to other people. Every single one of us falls short of God's perfect standard of His glory. Amen? Every single one of us who are in here, even those of us who are Christians, we recognize that every day, even as believers, we fall short of God's standard. But thanks be to God that He sent Jesus to the cross as the perfect sin bearer, perfect spotless lamb to die on the cross for our sins. Isn't that a beautiful truth and reality? If you are not a Christian this morning, that's where it begins. You must cry out to, for God's mercy, for Him to save you. And that begins a process of you being set apart continually, even in action. 
for Jesus Christ, with a new master with a capital M who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for us, those of us who are Christians, I think we oftentimes really misunderstand grace. I think we often think, well, I'm saved by grace, but now I, I, I got to do this thing of the Christian life by my own moral bootstraps. I need to work, 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 and make myself more holy, make myself do these things. Listen to me. The fertile soil for the believer, the fertile soil upon which Christians cultivate a holy, fruitful life is also the fertile soil of the grace of God. That's it. You cannot be holy. You cannot be fruitful unless you are living by grace. Cultivating upon that fertile soil of Jesus is atoning work for you on the cross. You cannot And we said last week, how does that start then? If we're doing that, well, it doesn't mean inactivity on our part. What does Romans chapter 12 verses 1 through 2 say? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. It begins, the sanctification process for us as believers is a continual thing. And we are to be active by being renewed in the spirit of our minds by means of what? By means of the word of God. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it make its home in your heart. How does that happen? Well, certainly reading the word of God, but really meditating and reflecting deeply and saturating, simmering your mind and your heart in the word of God. And can I say this? Responding to the word of God. Some of us love to read the word, but we don't appropriate its truth to our lives. We don't respond with obedience. You see, it's not just enough to read it or to hear the Word of God and hear tons and tons of messages on audio and on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. It's not enough simply to read and hear the Word of God. You must appropriate the truths of the Word of God to your life. What does that look like? Well, it means that if you're confronted with the great character and the majesty of God by means of His Word in your personal time in the Word or as you listen to sermons or messages, if you're confronted with the great majesty of God, then you respond in prayer with worship and adoration and praise because He's worthy to be worshipped in the light of who He is, isn't He? He's worthy to be worshipped. That's obedience. Worship. Adoring Him. Praising Him. Opening our lips so that He might hear our praises as His people. What about if you read the promises of God? Or you hear about the promises of God? Well, we respond in obedience by banking on those promises. Living in the midst of our suffering and trials by trusting in the Lord. Not leaning upon our own understanding, but acknowledging Him in all of our ways. Realizing that if He promises certain things in His Word amidst our suffering, we know that we worship a God who is both good And concerned for his glory, but he also wants to do us good himself, doesn't he? We can trust him. So obedience means responding to the promises of God by banking on those promises and resting and waiting upon the Lord. That's obedience. That's obedience. What about if there are commandments or or rules of God to obey or to follow? Well, we respond by obeying those, not being, according to James 1, a hearer who is self-deceived, but a doer of the word of God. Thinking purposefully about how do I apply this in action, in my thoughts, in my words, in my attitudes, in my actions, in the way that I sacrifice for God and sacrifice for others. Follow his commands. Or if there's a sin revealed in the word of God, 
if we are walking in some kind of a sin that is keeping back, stifling our sanctification, our holiness, then we respond by repenting of our sin as believers. We confess it. We agree with God that it's wrong, that it's an affront to his character. And we are renewed again in the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ already. And we ask the Lord for his grace to overcome that sin. That's obedience too. So how does this the grace sanctify us? We are renewed in the spirit of our minds by means of the word of God so that we learn to think differently, but also to respond by appropriating the word of God to our hearts and lives, beloved. And the spirit of God takes a hold of us, right? As we obey and we submit to his yielding and his calling upon us to obey the word of God that he's revealing to us. And we are made more and more like Jesus. And in the end, that has nothing to do with us. It's got everything to do with God's work. Otherwise, none of it would be possible. None of it. Now, that's individualistically. But I want you to think about this in context. Notice that all of the pursuits of godly, godliness in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10 of Titus had to do with also the communal aspect of this. Not only are you to personally be pursuing the Lord and renewing your mind by means of the Spirit of, the, the, the Spirit of God and the Word of God, but you are to be in community with the church of God because you are not an individual only now. You are a part of a, you're a member of the body of Christ. Jesus is the head, which means that he's a sovereign ruler over everything, over his church, and you are a member of the body. You are not now a thumb off to the side away from the body, and you are not to function that way. So part of how grace works to sanctify us and to make us more and more like Jesus is by, is, is by living in community together, by living attached, practically speaking, to the body of Christ. You need other people. Here I go again, don't I? You need other people. If you're living as a believer right now by yourself and you think that that's all that God requires of you, you are in sin if you are neglecting to be amongst the people of God in fellowship and mutual burden bearing and using your gifts to build up others and vice versa, opening your life for others to invest into you. You are in sin. And I understand that there are periods of time and seasons of life. I understand that I'm talking to you who perennially in your Christian life live as if you don't need anybody by choice and you think yourself sufficient. You cannot be everything that God has called you to be if you are not involved with God's people. And that looks different for all of us. I understand that. And we're all gifted differently and we're all in different stages of life. But you understand I'm after the heart condition. That's what I'm after here. Even given your limitations, you will find ways of being around others. You will find ways of people investing into you and of opening your life for others to get to know you as well. And then ultimately, not only is this a personal thing, it's a communal thing as well, but it's ultimately grace sanctifies us by allowing us to remember that it's all for the glory of God and from love and gratitude for Him. This is where we come back to grace again, that beautiful, fertile soil upon which holiness and fruitfulness um, is cultivated. We remember the grace of God again, that he has been so good to us, hasn't he? That he has delivered us from the power of our sin. And therefore we are, we are driven out of love for him to want to walk in obedience. Ultimately, all obedience and all pursuits of sanctification are and are to be built upon a love and gratitude for our great Savior. Amen? Love and gratitude for Him. And notice at the end of verse 12, is it possible to be holy? 
He says, you are to be this way in this present world. Oh, this must have shaken the, the Christians on the island of Crete. What, Paul? I mean, didn't you hear one of our prophets? Cretans are evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How do you expect us to live this way? It's real bad, Paul, here on the island of Crete. Wouldn't we say amen to that in our present day? How in the world do I live this way in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation? Listen to me. This truth of living this way in that present world applies to us today. We have the power to live in this present world holy lives. No matter how seemingly bad things have gotten in our present world. We have this responsibility. God doesn't lower his holy standards depending on when you live. Now we have social media. So the Lord says, oh, that's too hard for my people. Oh, there's no way they could do this. Too much temptation. No, 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 no. Let's lower the standards, spirit. Let's send them some more scripture. Lowering the standards a little bit. Maybe they need to be at just at 90%. No. He says, in the midst of this present world, whatever age you live in, believer, you are to be living holy lives. And you have the power to do it. Why? Because the grace of Jesus Christ has appeared. He has rescued you from the penalty and the power of sin. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you. John 16, 33, Jesus reassured his disciples. He said, in the world you will have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. The grace that saves, beloved, is the grace that sanctifies. The same God who exercised his power in raising you from spiritual death is the same God who works in you by his spirit to make you more holy. And some of you this morning, frankly, need a wake-up call. You need to wake up spiritually speaking. Some of you need to stop and recognize and examine yourselves. That's what 2 Corinthians 13.5 says. If you profess to know the Lord, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail the test. I cannot uh, overstate the importance of each of you considering this. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Test yourself. If you profess to know God, You see, there is no such thing as a carnal Christian, as I recently heard Joyce Meyer, a false teacher, say. And she's a false teacher. A carnal Christian? Making categories between spiritual Christians, carnal Christians? There's no such thing as a carnal Christian who is not growing, even in baby steps. Certainly Christians sin, amen? We struggle with sin. Even with patterns of sin, we can struggle. But to say that there is such a category of Christians who live characteristically in carnality is a contradiction according to God's word. It's a contradiction. Listen to me. There is no such thing as a professing believer who has a pattern, and that is the key word, as a pattern, lives in unrepentant sin. Such as sexual immorality, which is a broad term having to do with all kinds of of sexual sin. There's no such thing as a person who says that they know the Lord and yet in secret they are looking at pornography and not walking repenting of that sin. And you think that you're saved. 
You need to confess it. If you're a believer, you will respond by confessing your sin to God and you will come to someone who can help you in the Christian life. There's no such thing as a professing believer who is walking in fornication and sex outside of marriage. There's no such thing as a professing believer, true believer, who is walking in unrepentant adulteries, uh, having relations outside of his or her marriage with somebody else. If that is you this morning and you profess to know the Lord, you need to repent of that sin if you are truly a believer and confess it to God and call for accountability from others who love you and who want to see you be holy. What about this? There's no such thing as professing believers who live in a a state of unrepentant bitterness and unforgiveness towards others, including in their marriages with their spouses. How could it be that you have been forgiven of an infinitely greater amount of sin by Jesus Christ on the cross, and yet you can't forgive your husband or your wife or ask for forgiveness? Wow! That is pride at its core. You have forgotten about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. There's an infinite chasm between God who is utterly holy and us. An infinite chasm that never ends as to how deeply and greatly we've sinned against Him. And what is one sin or a few sins from your spouse toward you? How could it be? How could it be and you call yourself a Christian? Repent. Repent and confess your sin if indeed you are a believer and make that right before the Lord and before your spouse. There is no such thing as people who are detached from the body of Christ continually, who are never around the church, don't even desire it. By choice, you stay away from God's people. How can you say that you're a Christian? How can you say that? If that's how you live, Jesus doesn't work apart from his church. Do you understand? His, his, his members, the members of his body. You need God's people. Or people who say, who show no restraint in their lives to sin, whatever his or her selfish pleasures and wants they pursue, how can you say that you're a Christian if you don't have any regard for any of your pursuits and goals and dreams and aspirations so as to ask God, Lord, is this what you want for my life? Because the genuine believer is godly. They want to know what God says and thinks about everything that they are pursuing. Some of you need to stop and reconsider your understanding of God's grace. God's grace is free, meaning it's a gift that can be earned by your good works, but only found in Jesus Christ. It is free to us in the sense that Christ paid the fullness of our debt because of our sins, because we cannot pay God based upon our good works. Only Jesus' merits accomplish that. But that does not mean that because God's grace is free in Christ, because he paid the debt, that it is cheap grace. It's not cheap grace that costs you nothing. Jesus said in in Mark chapter 8, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what he said. Renounce who you are and pursue me. Follow me, even if that means that that now I am going to take priority over your own physical family. Those are radical. That's a radical call, isn't it? High cost, high price. One Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew about this. He was a German pastor during World War II who opposed Hitler's hate towards the Jews and vehemently opposed them to the point where, he, where, where even Dietrich Bonhoeffer wanted to try to execute Adolf Hitler 
And he ended up getting uh, um, or assassinated Adolf Hitler. And he ended up getting executed for that plot. This man knew about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. And listen to what he wrote, quote, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. Costly grace is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all of his goods to purchase it. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and sacrifice. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies a sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his own son. You were bought with a price. And what has has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God, end quote. God's grace is free, but it's not cheap, beloved. It requires everything from us, but that pales in comparison to our future glory. Amen. Our future glory. And that's really, that's what leads to our third point here. As we strive for holiness by the grace of God. In a world that is full of suffering and trials and wickedness, we need not despair. We need not despair and give up. For grace thirdly sustains us. God's grace can be seen from the perspective that it is a sustaining grace. And how does it do that? Look at verse 13. By Focusing us forward and upward. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope. And what is that hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That word in verse 13, looking, continues to expand upon the grace of God. The grace of God sustains us by pointing us with eager anticipation and joyful longing to the return of Christ. And that's what the appearing in verse 13 has to do with. It's the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. It's talking about the second advent, the second return of Christ. If the first one in verse 11 can be seen as his incarnation, the appearing of Jesus in verse 13 is his second coming. Listen to me. In other words, as we say no to sin and say yes to godliness in this wicked and perverse generation full of trial and suffering, we do not lose heart for one day we will see Jesus. I long for that day, don't you? I long for that day. Can you imagine that moment when you see Jesus? I love that song, The Nails in Your Hands, right? And all of your injuries essentially tell me how much you love me, and they will be a reminder forever of your love for me. Can you imagine seeing Christ? You know, if heaven didn't have Jesus, I don't want to go to heaven. Honestly. I want to see Jesus. 
I want to go to heaven because Jesus is there. Can you imagine? That is our hope. Listen to 1 John 3, verses 3 through 4. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Wow. That anticipation of knowing that we're going to see Jesus should drive us to want to be holy, practically speaking, on this earth so that we would see him in utter holiness, right? Of course, we're going to be wrapped in his righteousness, but it matters how we live. So living in this world is hard, difficult, and full of battles. And what exacerbates those things is our own sin that we bring into the equation. But what sustains us in this life is our hope, who is Jesus Christ. That phrase in verse 13, the blessed hope, is synonymous with the glory of our great God and Savior, who is Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus is appearing, is our blessed hope. 1 Timothy 1.1 says that Christ Jesus is our hope. Christ Jesus is our hope. And please note something in verse 13. Jesus is called there, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And for those of you Greek scholars, the, the whole title there is governed by one definite article. Literally, the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? All that that means is that this is an explicit reference right here to the deity of Jesus, identifying Jesus as God in human flesh. Jesus is God as the Father and the Spirit are God. One God eternally existing in three persons. Jesus is God. If Jesus isn't God, he can't save you. If he's not the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, he can't be the great sin-bearer. He cannot do that. That's why if, you're, if you believe in Jesus, you're a follower of Christ, rather, you must believe that Jesus is God. You may not be able to slice that perfectly, understand the fullness of what that means and how that works, but you must affirm it because the Word of God affirms that Jesus is God. He is God. And thus, He can be Savior and Redeemer. You must believe that He's God. The God-man is our hope. He's our hope. And he's our hope by virtue of the fact that he resurrected from the dead. 1 Peter 1.3 says that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. Without the resurrection, there is no solution to the problem of death which sin brings. But because Jesus rose from the dead, conquered sin and death, beloved, we have hope who are in Christ. Amazing for those of us whose bodies are deteriorating as we speak, that we will one day have a new body. And part of that is our inheritance because Jesus, Jesus will give us that new body by virtue of the fact that he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. So that we can say, oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. Jesus rose from the dead. And we who are in him will rise from the dead as well, literally, physically someday. Isn't that glorious? Glorious. 1 Peter 1.4 describes our hope as sure. It's sure. It says that it's an imperishable inheritance that we have, meaning not subject to decay. It is undefiled. It cannot be polluted or corrupted by anything physical or in this world and will not fade away like withering flowers or grass. 
reserved in heaven for you. Listen to me. You have a paid, all-inclusive reservation to heaven someday. Nobody can take that away from you. And if anybody has a problem with that, all you got to do is appeal to God the Father in what he did in and through his son. He owns the hotel up there. All-inclusive. No one can take it, even yourself, even your lack of performance in the Christian life. If you are a believer, it's all based upon the merits of Jesus Christ. It says, who are protected by the power of God. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. We are in the hands of God. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. Christian hope is not the, 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 the world's kind of hope that can, may happen. It's a, an ob, a issue of chance. Christian hope is unwavering and certain because it is secured by the cross of Christ and preserved by the very hand and power of God. 1 Peter 1.5 The power of God. No one can snatch them out of my hand, said Jesus, or my Father's hand. Beloved, no matter how bad things get or seem to get here on this earth, our hope is sure. Sure. This is why Paul writes to the Roman believers in Romans 8.38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is shown where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. We have hope because God loved us in Christ. And if he is for us in Christ, nothing on this earth can possibly change that. Isn't that beautiful? He loves us in Jesus Christ. It's so encouraging to have visited Tom Dobbs recently before he passed away and to hear from his own mouth about this hope that he had. And I asked him at what point, Tom, how are you doing, Tom? You know what his answer was? Great. I got nothing to worry about. It's the people who, are, who stay here that have a lot to worry about. He's right. How can he have this hope? Because he had made peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The, whole, the, the peace that surpasses all understanding and all comprehension, right? In Jesus Christ. We are to fix our eyes on Christ. Colossians 3 verse 1. If therefore you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Wow. Now I want you to note in verse, verse, um, in verse 14, that as Paul reminds them of their hope in Jesus Christ, he can't help but to reiterate yet again in verse 14 that Christ's death on the cross is the foundation for their Christian hope because it would have been easy for them to hear verse 12 about the pursuit of holiness and forget that Jesus' death on the cross, again, is the fertile soil upon which we cultivate holiness and fruitfulness in the Christian life. It goes back to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So that becomes the focal point yet again in verse 14. Notice. Jesus Christ, verse 14, who gave himself for us. It was a voluntary death. No one took his, his life. He gave it up on his own initiative. And it was focused, notice in verse 14, for us. He gave his life for us. Why? Because he loves us. Not because we were worthy. John fifteen thirteen. greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did. He gave his life for us. Notice why he did it in verse 14. He did it to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. There it again is the foundation for godly living. 
We don't belong to ourselves. Jesus has bought us out, redeemed us out of the marketplace of sin by ransom by his own life. And thus we belong to him. We are his own possession. If you are a Christian this morning, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. 1 Corinthians 6.19, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, listen to this, glorify God in your body. 2 Corinthians 5.15, he died for all so that they who live, Christians, might might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. He died for us so that we would be his special possession. He loves us. We are his own. But note also, Christ's death is not only the foundation of our hope, but I want to remind us of this as we close this sermon out. What gives us purpose on earth as we anticipate our king's return is also that death, and that we at the end of verse 14 are to be zealous for good deeds. His death was voluntary. His death was focused on us because he loved us. His death was purposeful so that we would belong to him, and his death was missional in the sense that he redeemed us so that we on earth, as we anticipate his return, would be zealous for good deeds. Why did Jesus die, beloved? Was it simply just to deliver us from hell? No, as glorious as that is, Jesus takes broken and dirty sinners and cleanses them and purifies us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but to serve him and serve his people, to be zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. I remember one mentor telling me, Kempis, be, earth, be heavenly minded. Focus on heaven or you will lose heart in this life. But then other times he would remind me, he said, but also don't be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. What was he trying to say? Focus on Jesus Christ in heaven, Colossians chapter 3, but remember that you have a mission on earth. Empowered by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God. Well, we have a great hope, don't we? But it is this hope that should propel us to be zealous for good works, to be on mission on this earth. Listen to me. Maybe you're discouraged this morning about your own sins and your own trials and your own struggles. Maybe you're discouraged by the way that things seem to be heading, going be, uh, worse and worse in this world. I want to just remind you and promise you this. We don't know if things are going to get better. They're only going to get worse. But I will remind you of this from God's word that we have a great hope in the return of Jesus Christ. And he is the one that we need to fix our hope completely upon. At the revelation, the revealing of this one who is going to come in this time very publicly to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. He is the one that we need to set our hope on. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship as believers is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. In a nutshell, what He's saying is, those of us who have committed our lives to Christ will be with Him, will be made like Him, And as Revelation tells us, no more tears, no more pain, no more struggle with sin. Perfect fellowship with God and eternal life with the lover of our souls. Are you looking forward to that day? Come, Lord Jesus. It's all made possible by God's amazing, transforming grace. That's why we love the song Amazing Grace, don't we? We love that song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound 
that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. That's saving grace. Through many dangers, tolls, and snares I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. That's sanctifying and sustaining grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Father, your grace is amazing. Your grace is marvelous. Oh, Lord, thank you that it is not based upon anything that I do or that my beloved brethren do, but it is based upon the atoning, substitutionary death of your Son. Thank you for Jesus, and thank you for the cross. Thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus, into the world as the ultimate expression of your kind intentions for sinners who deserve only your judgment. He lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that we cannot, uh, Lord, die. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And Father, I pray that if there are those here who have not committed their lives by faith to Jesus Christ, trusted in his redemptive work, that they would do so today, that they would give their lives to you, Lord, and be rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the Son of your love. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you need anyone to pray with you or pray for you, we have counselors available up front. Um, I'm also available up front if you have any questions about the message or anything you want to talk to me about. I would love to hear your heart on those things.